Welcome to The Property Wizard. If you are brand new to the real estate investment world or have limited experience, you've come to the right place. Freddie Crouch has over 35 years of real estate investing experience. He's seen it all and he's ready to share it with you. This podcast takes an inside look at investing in real estate, what to look for, and most of all, how to move forward. Please welcome The Property Wizard, Freddie. Welcome back, everybody. Wonderful to have you on board. I want to thank Nathan Simon for that great tune. Nathan is part of the team at Carl Speaks, which is headed up by no other than podcast guru, Carl Richards. And of course, we need to thank Carolyn Nicola, our social media marketing expert. Thanks, team. So Bernie, from our last podcast, were there any questions, comments? Yes, we have something from Chantel from the mailbag. In last week's podcast, you spoke a great deal about co-tenancy agreement. Where can I get a copy of an agreement? While most co-tenancy agreements are alike, they should contain relatively similar clauses. They vary according to the way the solicitor, and there's always a lawyer involved, has structured it. There is no one-size-fits-all So there isn't a one-size-fits-all document. The number of shares, the amount of money involved will always vary. Again, we must emphasize the importance of seeking ILA, independent legal advice, in all matters pertaining to the acquisition of real estate, not just when dealing with co-tenancy documents, but also when dealing with any agreement of purchase and sale. It only makes sense. So the short answer to your question, Chantel, is, well, most of the clauses are going to appear to be the same in most any co-tenancy agreement you come across. At the end of the day, each document is going to vary. Awesome. I have another one uh, here from Dave. And Dave's question runs like this. If I'm planning on getting a group of my friends together to buy a property and we don't have enough money to pay cash for the entire purchase and need financing, how do we qualify? Does one partner arrange for it and the others enter into an agreement with that partner for repayment? Generally, what will happen is in a circumstance like that, all members of the co-tenancy will be required to submit applications because when the document or the financing is approved, all people, all members, everyone involved in the co-tenancy will be deemed to be jointly and severally liable for the loan. So essentially, what you'll usually see is that there may be one or two applicants or members of your co-tenancy that are much, much stronger than the other two, three, four, five, six. It doesn't really matter. The application is carried and put forth on behalf of all the individuals that are involved with the co-tenancy. At the end of the day, the co-tenancy agreement stipulates what happens if one or several partners have invested more than the other. And the same can be said about any assumption of liability, i.e., for instance, a loan, because maybe you might seek financing outside of the original purchase. Maybe the co-tenancy is contemplating a major renovation. It may just be easier for someone to reach into their own personal line of credit or the credit facilities they have to support or finance that. But the co-tenancy agreement actually addresses what happens in the circumstance like that. At the end of the day, it's meant to be fair so that if you've put more money in than one of your other partners, you of course can expect repayment in full prior to the division of any proceeds from that project. I hope that answers your question. If not, just let us know and we'll give it another shot. So what do we got coming up next? 
From the current events desk of the Property Wizard, it's News of the Week. So today, what I did earlier this morning is I came across an article written by Yadella Hussein, who posted this article in the Financial Post in their post-hate supplement dated October 5th. And it's quite interesting what it says. Let me just read to you a portion of what she's written. Atlantic Canada has emerged as a COVID-19 haven for the past year for those fleeing crowded public transit, teeming grocery stores, long lines, and absurdly high home prices in large Canadian cities. And that a steady migrant stream is gaining strength with Royal Bank of Canada reporting that the net migration in Atlantic Canada was higher in the first and second quarters of 2021 than in 2019 and 2020 combined. Just to put that in the right perspective, the surge in the second quarter alone was the largest since 1961 when data collection began. So the reason why I bring this to your attention is because the specter of home ownership is changing dramatically. The specter, the way home ownership is viewed is changing dramatically. And people, if they want to hold or hold on to that dream of home ownership, are realizing that it's far easier to obtain that dream if you move to the East Coast where home prices are less expensive. The article goes on to say that data from the Canadian Real Estate Association and Nova Scotia Migration suggests that around 9,260 people moved to Nova Scotia from other provinces in the second quarter. That's up 55.5% from the year earlier, with Ontarians and Albertans most keen to buy one-way tickets. One reason for Ontarians eyeing the Atlantic The average price of a home sold in Nova Scotia was just under $356,000 in August of this year, a steal by Toronto standards. In contrast, the average selling price for all home types in Canada's largest city stood at over $1,136,000. And that's the latest data from the Toronto Real Estate Board. So there may be opportunities for investors to look to the Maritimes for buying maybe multifamily residential apartments and units. The prices definitely seem to be more in line with what we historically have been used to paying. But having said that, This speaks to the changing face of home ownership. Home ownership is very quickly not being an absolute for everyone out there. It's changing. What's happening is the price of a home is increasing, and there are a lot of people out there that no longer have the ability, nor will they have the ability, if current economic climbs remain as they are, to buy a home. It's no longer a foregone conclusion that you'll be able to buy a home. And what that is doing is putting more pressure on the rental market in all areas. So keep that in mind. This is all part of a cyclical theory in some parts of this country, just like down in the States, you know, property values, they rise, they fall, and we'll have a complete uh, podcast dedicated just trying to read into the cyclical theories. But that being said, remember, home ownership is an absolute or God-given right. We all like to think that it is, but it's becoming more and more less attainable as it becomes more expensive. So keep that in mind. 
and keep in mind where current migration trends are going. You know, right now, the cost of a home, the cost of property in the Maritimes is very inexpensive. How long do you think that's going to last for, considering there's such a huge migration of people going to the Maritimes? primarily because the cost of living, the cost of housing is so much less. So for our listeners that are looking for opportunities outside of their immediate area, the Maritimes is one place that you may want to take a look at. So that in some nation is in the news. Our guest today is Michelle Lalonde, and Michelle has an extensive history, 40 years experience in financial services marketing, banking, commercial lending, management consultant, Fantastic. Wow. And he's been a branch manager, senior loan inspector, and senior account manager at the National Bank of Canada for more than 20 years. And he's also been granted the fellow of the Institute of Canadian Bankers or his FICB designation as well. So what we'd like to do right now is welcome our guest. Welcome to the podcast. Really nice to have you here today. Well, thank you very much. It's good to be here. Great. So we have a few questions that we'd like to ask you. We'd like to basically just go over them with you and see what you think and take advantage of your extensive experience. Could you explain to our listeners why or what some of the advantage are to using a mortgage broker are as compared to going to their home bank or branch? Well, somebody that goes, for example, to their home bank, they're dealing with basically an individual that can offer them the products of that financial institution. So, for example, if they get to refuse because the lender doesn't like the product, for example, they then have to basically go to another financial institution and repeat the same process all over again. The advantage of using a mortgage broker is that, you know, we deal with multiple lenders, various types of lenders. It could be banks, credit unions, it could be insurance companies. We deal with you know, what are called monoline lenders as well, people like MCAP, First National. And we also deal with what are called mix mortgage investment corporations and, of course, private lenders. So we have an extensive network of contacts that are willing to lend money so that what we do is we put together a package, we explain your particular situation, present the facts as they are, and basically kind of shop the market for you and try to get you the best or get individuals the best deal possible for their particular situation or circumstances. It almost sounds as if you'd be almost foolish to try to do it any other way. I mean, you know, it's such an exhaustive process and the time, especially considering, you know, in today's market, very often there's a very, very small period of time given for the fulfillment of conditions, including financing, that you really need somebody who's very experienced and really has their finger on the pulse of the lending community in order to get that done as quickly as possible. So just from start to finish, I know every file is different. How long should an individual expect an application to take? What kind of time frame are we looking at, Michelle? I see in many cases where the condition for financing is often insufficient. So it could be, you know, a week, 10 days. And in many cases, that doesn't work. Again, depending on the complexity of the file, the amount involved in the type of property, I would say that from start to finish, the application process could take maybe several days or a week. And then it's sent off to a lender who then provides a response, either a letter of interest 
or a commitment within a relatively short time frame, but it could be, I would say, it's an easy two-week process. Before an individual actually comes in to see you, there's a great deal of information that they can provide to you at the initial sit-down consult, whether, for instance, there's a particular property. Would you suggest that potential borrowers who are in the market to buy a duplex, triplex, something along those lines, come in with their personal information at the start, even before property is found, just to get a head start and try to lessen that period of time? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yes. We can basically almost pre-qualify them to see what kind of property they can afford. The overriding factor in many cases is that can they service the debt? Uh, Can their own income and support the repayment of the amount of financing they're looking for? So the type of documents that they can provide you with are things like T4s or notices of assessment, personal assessments, maybe statements as far as cash balances, you know, term deposits, those type of things they can bring in, sit down, speak to you and say, Michelle, this is what I'm starting with. This is what I want to do. Absolutely. Yeah. So things like maybe a recent pay stub, they may require a letter of employment at some point from the lender, but often income tax returns and notices of assessment for the past two years, information on their own assets, uh, such as statements, as you mentioned, it could be bank statements regarding what they've got, you know, on deposit at the bank. It could be also, you know, an impact assessment for their own properties or an appraisal to validate, you know, how much equity they have in their property. So all of those things, we can go over that with the individual and make sure that they've got all the bases covered essentially Wonderful. once we get Wonderful. started. So for our listeners out there, always good to have a personal package together. If you get involved, whether it's with a co-tenancy or whether it's individually, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's always good to have your mortgage broker. And we spoke about teams very early on during this series. Always good to have a qualified mortgage broker as part of your team because you may use him for a transaction but or your first transaction, but chances are it makes a lot of sense to go back to that individual for your second, third, and subsequent investments too because who better to know your financial situation and history than the mortgage broker used for your very first one. So keep that in mind. So what does a mortgage broker charge? Are there any upfront or application fees, Michelle? In my case, I prefer to deal with the million plus range. Again, given my I guess, expertise in the field. But on average, it can take anywhere between, say, 25 and 35 hours to put together an application package for a lender. So again, it depends on the complexity. If we're looking at a duplex, for example, or a triplex, I mean, that time frame is probably not quite accurate. But for small investment properties, such as four units or less, typically the traditional you know, banks or some of the lenders will provide a commission to the broker in the broker channel or a commission. So if that's the case, then obviously we don't charge anything extra. But if we're looking at, say, a commercial property, which is five residential units or more, an office, industrial, that sort of thing, then the way I work is I look for a small retainer and we establish what the commission is going to be, which is payable on closing. So that fee varies depending on the size of the deal, the complexity, the property type, and so on. It can range anywhere from 1% to 4%, 4% being on the really high side. But again, it's based on the larger the deal, the smaller the percentage financing. The retainer that I look for is typically roughly 25 
sometimes 35% of the ultimate fee. And again, when I ask for a retainer, I'm usually very confident that I can get the financing done. So I'll speak to somebody, get you know a lot of the information, determine whether or not the deal is feasible and so on. And then we enter into an agreement, a financing uh, mandate is what I call it. Yeah. So tell me, are environmental assessments generally needed on all applications or are they usually an added condition of financing once the loan is being Well, if it's available, sometimes the vendor will have a recent ESA or environmental site assessment in hand, and it might be, you know, a year or two old. And, you know, if that report is favorable, then usually the lender will accept that. He may want an update. So ideally, you don't want to spend, you know, some extra money that you don't need to unless absolutely necessary. But otherwise, you know, the lender will perhaps insist on an ESA, and that can be done kind of after the fact. But going back to an earlier question, how long does it take? So if a lender has approved a transaction, say it took two weeks, and then none of these, you know, there's no appraisal, there's no ESA, or a building conditions report, or whatever it is, if none of that has even been started, then the whole process will take even longer. So add another three or four or five weeks to that process. Will a mortgage broker have access to private funds? Should an application from financing be declined by a conventional lender? Or if it's declined by a conventional lender, is that an immediate full stop? Private funds are available. And to be quite honest with you, if the purchaser feels that they may not even qualify for a conventional loan at a bank, for example, they may even want to start the process with a private lender. The conditions are a little bit more fluid. And, you know, if there's what we call hair on the transaction somewhere along the way, then they're certainly more forgiving than a conventional type lender. Michelle, can you tell us some of the typical loan-to-value ratios uh, for the purchase of, let's say, a multi-unit residential, two units or less, like a duplex or a single-family home as a baseline for our listeners? What could you normally expect to get on a conventional first mortgage? You could probably get up to 80% on a conventional mortgage. If you were looking at a high ratio mortgage, you know, go up to 85%. So in a situation where we're dealing with a multi-unit residential of three or more units, what could you expect to get financed typically on a conventional first? Change that slightly to five units or more, probably. And that would range between 65 to 80%. 75 is probably you know where that would end up in most cases. So that's actually still quite good. Super. So tell me, what are the rate differences for various types of investment properties as compared to the posted rate typically found for the purchase of a single family home? Now, I keep on going back to the single family home because that's what everybody sees posted. So when I have these discussions with people, they say, well, I can get money at 1.79% you know, for four or five years to finance my three or four, my fiveplex or sixplex. I'm very quick to point out to them that don't think you're going to be able to get posted rates necessarily on the purchase of any type of investment property. It doesn't work that way. Could you tell us what the rate differences are, what you would expect to pay over and above the posted rates when buying an investment property? Posted rates are typically for single family homes and the rate that an individual will pay is discounted by the lender. We have access, we know it 
typically the posted rates are and, and what the rates that the lenders are offering. And that the difference between the two can vary from, say, on a one-year term, it could be a difference of 0.75%. And on a five-year term, it could be a difference of 2.5% on an insured product. That's excellent advice. That's excellent knowledge to know. Okay, wonderful. Great. So the next question is always an interesting one, and it's one that I've been asked a few times. Will the income that an income property generates be used at 100% of face value when the application for the loan is submitted or failing that, which, and again, we haven't really gotten into this before. Listeners, there's something called a debt coverage ratio, and I don't really want to get into that too much right now. If an income property is generating $50,000 in net operating income a year, will that income be used to help qualify the borrower when it comes to financing the property? Well, the short answer is sometimes. Sometimes lenders will allow 100% of the income to be used. In other cases, it can be 50%. And again, the lenders are looking also at the costs involved of that particular property, property taxes, insurance, and you know, condo fees, that sort of thing, if that applies. So again, it depends on the lender. It depends on the size of the property. But back to your comment about that service coverage ratios, That is, again, what lenders are really focused on is can the debt be be repaid with enough of a cushion that they're going to be comfortable with. Bernie, you have a question to ask, Michelle? The first one is, do certain banks have certain properties they prefer to finance over others? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, sort of the corollary to that is that some lenders don't like to do special purpose type of properties. So it could be a trailer park, for example. It could be specialty properties like restaurants, gas stations, churches. Most lenders, again, have their preferences. Multifamily properties are by far the best asset class for for, uh, new investors to consider. It's a lot less risky than a commercial endeavor. One other question. How long do you have to wait before you can leverage the property you just bought through a bank? You can't do it initially unless you've got enough equity in the property to be able to do that. Again, assuming that it can debt service properly, then you can do an equity takeout and you know use that to purchase another property. Excellent. So, wonderful. Well, Michelle, on behalf of both Bernie and I and our listeners, I want to thank you very, very much for participating in this very, very informative podcast. I know we have a number of listeners out there that I'll probably be taking you up and tracking you down and looking for your contact information on our podcast notes, because so much of what we do is determined by financing. And I think you've really done your profession proud here. You've answered some fairly difficult questions. And it's really something that, you know, every listener out there, every investor needs to have a qualified and experienced mortgage broker on your team. And I've seen a lot and spoken to an awful lot of mortgage brokers myself, having been in the business for 35 years. And there aren't too many that are more qualified than Michelle. So please, by all means, listeners, reach out to Michelle if you have any mortgage concerns or situations where you require financing. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. With that, What's the next thing on our agenda, Bernie? It's time for the Property Wizard's Word of the Day. Word of the Day. And the word of the day is assessed value. Oh, here we go. Assessed value. Well, the short-term definition of assessed value, 
is a valuation placed on a property as a basis for municipal taxation. So many people confuse the assessed value that they see on their tax bills as an accurate picture or valuation of your property. That isn't necessarily the case. Typically, the governing body who administers property tax or a concurrent body will assess a property's worth once every three, four, five, or 10 years. What's important is not what the assessment says so much as as it is to note that the assessment is completed for entire geographic area, usually a municipality or region. Theoretically, similar homes in this area should be valued similarly. The reason for this makes sense when you consider what this assessment is used for. The region or municipality takes its annual budget and divides that by the value of all property within its jurisdiction in order to establish what is referred to as a mill rate. This mill rate is then multiplied by the assessed value of the property in order to establish your annual taxes. So very often we're faced with situations where someone takes a look at their assessment and they say, well, this isn't right. I mean, they're saying that my property is only worth $235,000 when Joe's down the street sold for four and a quarter. That doesn't make the assessment inaccurate for the purposes it's meant for. You're not going to see a situation where a lender, and I'm sure Michelle will collaborate this, will use solely the assessed value to determine what the value of the property is. No, what they're going to want is they're going to want some sort of current market evaluation. And for that, they're going to call upon the services of the appraiser. The assessed value is basically and should be for a very specific year. Very often you'll see for the year, you know, 2020 or 2018, and sometimes that assessed value is stepped. So what you'll see is a marginal increase in the assessed value over a three, four or five year period. That's just changing the tax base. The annual budgetary figure, the mill rate is determined every year. It's not a fixed amount. And it varies according to the type of property it is. For instance, multifamily units have a higher mill rate than does a single family home. So these are all things to keep in mind. Don't confuse the assessed value in the notice of assessment that you receive from the tax department as being the value of your property, period. So with that, I don't know whether you have anything more to add to that, Michelle. It's a question we're very often asked. We really are. So that being said, Who's next up, Bernie? The next podcast is Legal Issues and Things to Watch Out For with special guest Mark Habib of Habib and Associates. And the other parts to tell you that's relevant, remember, you can save $250 on your next Gentry Learning course by using the phrase podcast when checking out. And podcast is all uppercase letters, P-O-D-C-A-S-T. And if you have questions about this podcast or any other podcast or just questions in general, you can reach uh, Freddie at info at gentryres.com, info I-N-F-O at Gentry, G-E-N-T-R-Y-R-E-S dot com. All thank one word for Gentry Res. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Bernie. Once again, I'd like to thank our special guest, Michelle Lalonde, for joining us. Thank you very much. And remember, if there are no problems, there are no opportunities. Till next time, thank you for joining us. Have a great week. Thanks for joining Freddie on another edition of The Property Wizard. Got a question? Ready to invest? 
Email info at gentryres.com. And if you'd like to find out more about the courses offered through Gentry Learning, visit gentryres.com. Until next time, remember, if there are no problems, there are no opportunities. Thank you.